Hello and welcome to Coffeehouse Shots, the Spectator's Daily Politics Podcast. I'm Natasha Froze and I'm joined by Fraser Nelson and Kate Andrews. Well, we are in the office, despite the fact that there has been another strike today. Fraser, what has been going on with these strikes and is central London very busy at the moment? People are now used to, first of all, the kind of lockdown mentality, of course, if in doubt, stay at home. Now, we're quite hardy at The Spectator. We sort of came in even when it was against the law to do so. So we're... we're I just want to clarify the listeners, we were legally allowed to come in as we were classified as key workers, as much as I think Fraser (laughs) loves the idea that we were defying the government. But yeah, go on. Well, we were defying the zeitgeist. The thing is, (laughs) um, and we're here today, but I got a train in, which was almost empty. I'm still running, by the way. Apparently, they'd changed the plans at the last minute. Then I got a rental bike and dodged the underground. So there are ways to get in if you want to get in. But there's a sort of feeling creeping over that this country isn't working in the way that it used to a few years ago. So in a way you lose track of who's on strike or why they're on strike. It just seems to fit a general trend of collapse. And I think we're going to get a lot more of this. I mean, Mike Lynch, the RMT union leader, has said that he can can see strikes lasting for the foreseeable future. And that is quite easy to see why. I mean, right now with inflation as it is, just over 10%, you're getting a situation where the average private pay increase is about 7%, and the average state sector pay increase is about 2 or 3%. So that differential partly explains by the way that public sector workers were more, more protected over the pandemic, is a recipe for strikes, is a recipe for discontent. And I think also Mike Lynch, I think, was quite right when he was saying that much of this inconveniences a lot of workers. A lot of people also know that their salary is being eaten away by inflation, A lot of people are hoping that their salary will also go up, if not quite by inflation, then by almost as much in the beginning of the next year. So you you kind of want the the idea that the power is somehow back in the court of the workers and is away from the employers is something that a lot of people have got a vested interest in. So I think Michael Lynch has got more of a point than many on the right might like to realise when he says that the strike is a struggle which is on behalf of a lot of people. So I do think we're going to see this spreading. And Kate, what is it that Mike Lynch, on behalf of all of his workers, is asking for? So they want more protections. First and foremost, there were frustrations that it looked like some TFL workers and their jobs could be slashed. There were complaints around pensions, but it does look like there's going to be another GMB vote for a pay raise around 11.1%. So that really would be on target with inflation. So clearly there is a desire to, to up pay as well. I think Fraser makes an excellent point that everybody right now can sympathize with the idea of asking for more money, whether you're in the public sector or the private sector. I think the question for me as the summer and certainly the autumn comes in is to what extent do the unions get this balance right? Because even though there might be increased sympathy right now, and it might be the case that if you, you know, take bike and foot and all the rest of it, you can get to your job today. A lot of people are more than inconvenienced. They actually can't reach work. And for a lot of people, that means they won't get paid today. That It isn't necessarily work that they that they can do from home. And so if you are also somebody who's struggling from the cost of living, that's more than an inconvenience. That's a real attack in many ways on your ability to, to, to bring in your own income. So I think we have to break this down into jobs. Everybody sympathizes with nurses, for example, in their pay. The average NHS nurse is paid 
paid less than the average nurse in Chile, for example. I mean, we are egregious when it comes to our pay for nurses. But when the trains were on strike and we were looking at the average pay of train drivers, which is well above the average pay, I think in many cases double in the UK, that sympathy is going to wane real fast. So Mike Lynch's talk about how we're going to start doing these strikes at the same time, we're going to basically cause as much pain as possible, put TFL, put the trains, put everybody on strike. I think that could start breaking down very quickly, especially because even if you are getting a pay raise right now, the ONS just this week released figures showing that because of inflation, the average person feels about a 3% wage cut. That's substantial. And if you are... That's if you're lucky enough to be getting a 7% nominal pay rise, right? Well, exactly. So I'm just talking about averages here, right? A lot of people aren't getting those pay raises, yeah, but, but on average... I suspect a lot of people listening to this will be thinking they've got no chance of getting a 7% pay rise over next January. So uh, on average, wages are going up, but then inflation makes you feel worse off. Some people aren't getting these pay raises at all. And so I, I think for the unions, this is really going to be a question of balance because personally, I think people get far more frustrated more quickly than others suspect. Fraser, what does this mean for Keir Starmer? Obviously, he hasn't supported his MPs that have gone to the picket line. Sam Tarry has been suspended for going to the picket line. Does this put him in another predicament? Well, the problem is he's got the context of trying to move his party away from the Corbynite inheritance and towards centrists. Now, Keir Starmer sees in these strikes a massive trap laid for him. He thinks the Tories want to betray him as the, the man who's on the side of Lynch and the various strikers. And that's why he has been firing some Labour MPs who, from benches who've been turning up to the, the picket lines and why he's been trying to keep a distance with the strikers as well, to the fury of maybe many Labour members. Of course, when we say Labour members, we have to work out this is a declining number of them. There are figures out this morning showing that Labour Party membership has gone down from about 520 to 430,000 people. Now, that might be seen as a bad thing, but Starmer might see it as a good thing. He'll probably say, and he's probably right, that a good number of those who've quit were the Corbynites, the guys who only joined the Labour Party for the Corbyn project, and now that that particular project is over, they're moving away. So Keir Starmer is fighting two battles right now. Of course he wants to be Prime Minister, he's fighting the Tories, but he is still fighting for control and even authority over his own party. So that's why the strikes are such a difficult issue for him. Instinctively, Labour MPs want to be standing in solidarity behind those who are striking today. But Keir Starmer wants to be recognised as the middle-of-the-road guy who's not going to scare Middle England, so he wants to deny the Tories the ability of casting him as um, Mike Lynch's wingman. For the leadership contenders, is this a particularly relevant topic for them to make a stand on? They can say that they don't support the strikes, but can they come up with anything that separates one from the other that would get them more support? Well, this trust is using this as an excuse to say how tough she would be on strikers, etc. You know, it's this is the fairly standard knee-jerk Tory response to this. But the funny thing is that during the Cameron years, where there were lots of cuts, lots of austerity, there weren't nearly as many strikes as people expected. So if you are clever about this, you can actually manage public spending consolidation without going into all-out war with the unions. It seems to me, listening to Liz Trust, that she actually wouldn't mind all that war with the unions. And certainly McLynch would quite like all that war with her. So it's very difficult to tell anything for serious, for real, when you're looking at what they say in the context of a leadership context. But you do get the impression of a battle line being drawn, trusts versus the unions, with the unions very much itching for that fight. And Kate, on trust, there have been reports today about how she might be received in Washington, should she most likely become the next prime minister. 
Do you think her first call, if she becomes the prime minister, will be to Biden? I suspect it will be to President Zelensky in Ukraine, but Biden will be towards the top of the list without question. Liz Truss has always been very clear in her time as Trade Secretary, Foreign Secretary, and even before that the special relationship is of vital importance. Regardless of leadership, that dynamic between the U.S. and the U.K. is a very important one, and I think it's one that Liz Truss and Joe Biden will respect. So I don't see there being any obvious animosity on the international stage, at least not right away. The bigger questions around Liz Truss is what she do over the Northern Ireland Protocol, because Joe Biden, when he came into the Oval Office, was very clear that he would back the EU side when it came to who he would support as those negotiations were playing out. And Liz Truss has been very bullish on the fact that she knows the protocol isn't working and she wants to make changes potentially unilaterally if the EU won't agree. It has been interesting to see how Biden has gone far more quiet on this issue, especially with America having its own problems. And since the war in Ukraine has broken out and the UK has been such a world leader in terms of the rhetoric and the attitude towards Ukraine, I think the new feeling in Washington, even if it's not said so boldly, is you guys just need to work it out. And actually, they don't necessarily want to engage too much in the EU versus UK battle because there's a much more important battle going on in Europe right now for the heart and soul of democracy and freedom, and that's the one people want to focus on. Look, people are going to point to Liz Truss around trade deals and her time as trade secretary being way more keen to put agriculture on the table to secure a U.S.-U.K. trade deal. There's going to be a lot of criticism of her opinions on that and what she, how she's going to operate on the world stage. But broadly speaking, I think the special relationship is in safe hands with Liz Truss or Rishi Sunak. And let's put it from, let's look at it in a slightly different perspective. Given the fact it held up under the Donald Trump years, that suggests to me that it's going to hold up almost regardless of whoever is in that seat. One of the things I'm very interested in is what Liz Truss would do about trade deal with America. Now, when she was trade minister, she was frustrated by what she called the access of evil, the Tory protectionists who didn't really want free trade despite having arguing for Brexit, naming no names but Michael Gove. And she was in meetings where, you know, Dom, there was one notorious meeting where she went in there with Boris and she was saying to Boris, look, if we want to get a trade deal with America, agriculture has to be on the table. And she was shouted down by Dominic Cummings, who said to her, that's ridiculous, it's just not going to happen, forget it. I've heard the account of this meeting from several people who were there. Then Dominic Cummings then lays into her, saying what a useless minister she is, etc. And this was important because Sasha Javid then came to her aid, saying, I think it's inappropriate that an advisor like Cummings talks to her that way. And by the way, she's right about trade. Now, it was that altercation that led to the sort of javid Truss alliance, which we now see. So Javid is rode in behind her, and I think she has always regarded him as being fundamentally on her side when it comes to these free trade battles. But of course, the upshot of that is that there is now nobody stopping agriculture from being put on the table in a trade deal with America. So I think Liz Truss will face quite a quick test of her principles. She's always struck me as being on the free trade side of the party. There's lots of protectionists there, lots of Tory party members do not want this to happen, lots of Tory party voters and farmers do not want agriculture put on the table. But if she really thinks it should be, well now there's nobody to stop her. So if she wants to make that special relationship even more special with a proper trade deal, that does involve us being able to benefit from lower-priced American farm produce, then the power now is within her hands. Thank you, Fraser. Thank you, Kate. And thanks for listening. Thank you for listening to this episode of Coffee House Shots. 
If you enjoyed it, please leave us a rating and review. And to keep up to date with the world of Westminster, sign up for Unrivaled Insight and Analysis with Isabel Hardman's Evening Blend newsletter, delivered to your inbox every weekday evening. Sign up at www.spectator.co.uk forward slash evening hyphen blend.